Utterly Moderate is the official podcast of the Connors Forum. Visit us at connorsforum.org and be sure to subscribe to our free email newsletter while you are there. Please listen carefully. Carefully. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm your host, Lawrence Eppard. Now, longtime listeners of this program know how concerned we are about the moment we are in in post-truth America. That is, we live in a time where objective facts are, unfortunately, becoming less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. We've spent a lot of time on this program talking about how American conservatives are regularly lied to by Fox News, Newsmax, and OAN about a variety of issues, whether it's supposedly stolen elections or climate change or immigration or any number of topics. On today's episode, however, I want to turn a critical eye toward those who feed American liberals misleading information. Many in the left-wing bubble tell virtuous lies. That's a concept that was created by my guest today, Jacob Mackey. These are seemingly authoritative yet flawed claims made by some academics and partisan media outlets on the left that further a social justice agenda. People make these claims without realizing or acknowledging the weak, unsettled, and even sometimes non-existent empirical support behind their assertions. Liberal audiences believe these claims because they fit their worldview, they make them feel good, and they come from credentialed people who they trust. Additionally, for a liberal to oppose a virtuous lie would be to align oneself with bad people, supposedly bad people, on the other side. You know, supposed bigots or know-nothings, etc. Jacob Mackey, our guest today, he says that to correct a virtuous lie is to oppose the noble goals of one's tribe and or to signal that one does not take the problem seriously. The left tells many virtuous lies, particularly about issues related to race and gender, including claims regarding the gender pay gap, gender identity, microaggressions, and implicit bias, to name but a few. Now, this, of course, doesn't mean that everything the left says about these topics is false. doesn't even mean that most of the things they say about these topics uh, is false, But many claims made by academics and partisan media outlets on the left about social justice issues present a biased analysis, a a partial understanding of the topics, uh, but they're presented as if they are the authoritative consensus. And the misleading information that's, that's coming to the left, coming to the right, this is all contributing to feelings and beliefs becoming more important than facts for millions of people. People are becoming increasingly comfortable bending reality to their beliefs instead of, you know, bending your beliefs to reality. And millions of Americans are losing faith in notions of facts, expertise, and reality altogether. As my colleague and friend of this show, Lee McIntyre, argues, quote, What seems new in the post-truth era is a challenge not just to the idea of knowing reality, but to the existence of reality itself, end quote. Now, as I said, we spent a lot of time on this program focusing on the misleading information that conservatives hear in their ideological bubbles. 
Today, we want to turn a critical eye to the ideological bubbles of the left. Coming up next, my colleague Jacob Mackey from Occidental College will join us to help further our understanding of this important issue. Jacob Mackey, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. All right, before we dive into talking about how both the left and the right have uh, become untethered from reality in recent years, let's talk about your background. So tell us uh, your academic training, where you teach, what you do. Okay. Um, So uh, I am a classicist and, uh, you know, I went to University of Texas at Austin for my undergrad, did a one-year master's at Christchurch, Oxford, and then got my PhD at Princeton in what was at the time uh, one of the great classics departments in the country. Um, And I now uh, am associate professor at Occidental College in Los Angeles. Occidental College is most famous as the place that Obama did his first two years of college before transferring to Columbia. Gotcha. And uh, so, yeah, I, 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 you came under uh, on my radar because, uh, you know, with this podcast, we focus a lot on how the right has become untethered from reality with election denying claims and, oh, yeah. um, <clears throat> you know, uh, climate change denialism. And, you know, when I, when I talk about this kind of stuff, you know, the left nods along and they're, they're very fired up about it and they, they can see it all around them and they, they see, and it's real. I'm not suggesting it's not. That's why we talk about it so much. But what the left is less willing to uh, acknowledge is the way in which it has impacted their side. So mm-hmm. today we're going to focus on that. And okay. um, I guess I would just start by saying that. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about what wokeism is and, and what, you know, this, uh, what's real about it, what isn't, what's real about the attacks, what's not. But I, I guess I would just ask, ask you a general question to begin with. I, I fear that this is really undermining institutions of knowledge both in terms of uh, how universities are teaching, but also in terms of how we're producing knowledge and our knowledge claims. So could you talk a little bit about that, how um, some of the ideological shifts on the left have infected knowledge production? Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, so it's clearly uh, had a, an affect and it's clearly um, infected knowledge production. And uh, I mean, I think what one of the ways that this has happened is it's just, it's, it's, the sort of extreme tilt to the left in the academy, which you can just document, you know, statistically, right? You, you know, the number of professors in various fields that identify as being, you know, on the left or the far left. Um, it's it's changed the starting principles of from which people begin their inquiry. You know, um, I think people begin their inquiry now from a position where they say where they say things i can just give you examples they say things like what's wrong with people on the right <laughs> let's like our question is what's what's wrong with people on the right what's wrong with republicans and that that you know that whole sort of framing becomes 
the beginning of your research or uh, or you begin with the assumption, you know, that something like uh, capitalism is bad or something like that. So, yeah. So I think uh, I mean, I think this is one of the core ways in which this shift to the left has uh, changed knowledge production in the academy is that it changes the core sort of the givens, the a priori's of, the, of scholars and inspires them to ask questions that are driven by underlying premises that not everyone would agree with, right? That are themselves tendentious and in themselves need to be first demonstrated. I think that would be one of the big ways. And so then also, I think because, you know, the academy has become so tilted, so left that it has simply ignored um, an entire range of of questions and attitudes toward inquiry that you could get if you had more uh, more moderate uh, scholars and also more scholars on the right or more scholars on the range of different you know right uh, places that there are to be it's not as if there's just one right you know place to be any more than that there's just one left place to be. Um, another thing that I think has happened in the academy, just again, this is this is what what's the word? This is impressionistic. But my impression from being in the academy now for you know the um, as long as I've been in it is that uh, there's a, it, it, the the leftism of the academy is a very specific kind of leftism, and it actually shuts out other leftisms that there might be, right? And that there once were in the academy. Um, so I was, uh, I was just recently rereading this amazing book, uh, Achieving Our Country by Richard Rorty. Um, Richard Rorty is, uh, you know, he died in 2007. He was a philosopher. He was an old school leftist of the, you know, organize the unions and get real, uh, like change economic policy so that it benefits working people. That kind of, he was, he was of that, you know, persuasion, not a Marxist per se, but uh, very much concerned with the economic justice and, and uh, working people. And uh, he points out in this book that in, in 1998, when he's writing, he's saying the academic left is moving over towards pure, a sort of purely cultural leftism that is that has lost touch with the, the econ economic issues. And I think that's even that's far more to be seen today, the sort of identitarian left, right? And uh, so that sort of this identitarian cultural left has just shut out all sorts of other leftisms that one might, um, that might be valuable to have in the academy, you know, asking different questions. And yeah, so. Yeah, so, uh, you, you know, if that were just it, and that's bad enough, yeah. if that were just it, that it were sort of crowding out or maybe even um, sort of removing from our field of vision, not even making it uh, something that we would think about, you know, questions that we could be asking. If that were, if that were all that were occurring, that would be bad enough. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm finding that the standards of evidence mm. in many fields in social sciences mm. and, you know, sociology, psychology, mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, the humanities, et cetera, are also falling to the point where things that are, you know, empirically weak claims mm -hmm. are making their way into journals. Um, they're yeah. making their way into policies across the country. I just give you one example. The research on microaggressions is really, really uh, muddy and it's unsettled and at, at best. And yet uh, they've moved, you know, the left has moved 
full speed ahead saying that, you know, these things are demonstrably uh, harmful. Uh, they're real. They're real in this specific character. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, we can now implement policies based upon this really empirically weak uh, mm-hmm. literature. I mean, what, what, what would you have to say about not just which, again, is incredibly important, right? Mm-hmm. Not just the crowding out of certain questions and and the shaping of, of certain research questions, but also I think the standards of evidence have fallen as well. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it would take, I do think it would take sort of a deep historic sort of dive into the history of research in fields like psychology and sociology um, to determine for sure whether the standards have actually fallen off a cliff or whether they were always pretty low, but they were just low in different directions. But so right now there's, yeah, I agree completely. There, something like microaggressions, which was just a sort of a neat idea that someone dreamed up. And it sort of, you know, there were like anecdote, there was anecdotal reasons from the authors, you know, Daryl Wingsu's uh, personal subjective experience to suggest that there might be something there. So then you just out of that, out of a sort of, you dream up a sort of neat idea that sort of jibes with your personal subjective experience. And then you, you call it, you just create a whole program out of it that you then don't subject to any kind of empirical testing. Yes, (laughs) this is a problem, right? And so, and that would be fine if, if all it was, was people sort of speculating in journal articles about microaggressions and never following it up with any empirical research, which is, you know, that's the case, right? That's what's happened. But then to just put it like to restate what you said, but put an even finer point on it, this thing that started out as a sort of critique of social interactions, of the friction of social interactions, you know, uh, let's call that friction microaggression. That thing then went from just being a neat critique of what happens in some social interactions to being a whole a, a scientific paradigm. You know, it generated just an entire sort of world, science, sort of quasi scientific worldview. And then that paradigm got institutionalized in regimes, right? In, in, Offices. There are whole offices that actually have physical addresses and that hire people, you know, that pay millions of dollars a year for staff. And it's all based on the construct of the microaggression, right? So there's that from critique to paradigm to regime. I got that beautiful three part movement from uh, Ibu Patel in a conversation we had. Ibu Patel is the founder of Interfaith America. So I wanted to put that as a footnote. Yes, I think that. So we, because the professoriate now prefers, has certain a prioris and has certain uh, sort of cultural left uh, um, premises that go on, that it does not question, it also then privileges uh, certain kinds of research, even when they ha- the, there has not been due diligence done. Absolutely. And so, um, right now we're in a golden age of, you know, creating constructs like the microaggression for which you have to uh, provide absolutely nothing by way of empirical evidence. Um, and, uh, for, and then it just gets adopted and turned from a paradigm into a regime with offices. And you can now get, you know, presumably, you know, you can basically get certificates in it <laughs> and, to, and, you know, get a raise for getting that. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely it's incredibly distorting. 
right? Uh, not only of our intellectual life, like the knowledge the academy produces, but it then actually distorts the institution in its very structure, right? These offices didn't used to exist. <laughs> These offices built around this con this academic construct of the microaggression. So, the distortion is beyond knowledge. It's a, it down to the very practical level. And I'll just say one other thing about when, once you've gone from, you know, faulty knowledge production, the microaggression, to institutional offices dedicated to combating the microaggression, you've created, and again, I get this from this conversation with Ibu Patel, you've created um, institutional structures with coercive power that begin to interfere in the lives of individual actors, right? And I mean, so it's, it's far more than just, oh, our knowledge. It's actually, we are now intervening in the lives of students. We're intervening in the interpersonal interactions of students, you know, of young people. What are going to be the downstream effects for these students of having been brought up on a coercive regime of microaggression policing, right? I don't think we know what this is going to do to society yet. We do know that sensitizing minority students to microaggressions is, act, is uh, actually highly likely to be bad for their mental health. Um, it per causes them to perceive ambiguous interactions as harmful more than they would if they had not been sensitized. So I don't think we know what the sort of systemic social consequences of our faulty knowledge production are yet. But I think it's we have reason to think it's not good. Yeah. And, you know, I, one of the um, I often see conversations like this, you know, it's, you watch any kind of argument between two people who don't really aren't really interested in actually having a conversation. They just sort of want to win. Right. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> they boil down what they've heard in the most simplistic uh, way possible. They, they sort of uh, miss the nuance. And so I want to be very clear uh, in what we're saying here, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. um, it's not wrong to suggest a new concept. It's not wrong to suggest a new area of inquiry. Um, and so the difference between that and then uh, arguing that something that has not even begun to be empirically demonstrated has conclusively been demonstrated it, that that's, that's what's happened. Right. And then like, as you say, for that to escape the lab yeah, and yeah. all of a sudden, you know, yeah. be, uh, you know, structuring institutions across the country at people in their formative years, that's, um, that's something totally different from just us having academic conversations about plausible concepts. Right. That is, uh, I'm so glad you said that because that's such an important, you know, caveat, right? Absolutely. The whole point of being a researcher in, in the academy is to come up with hypotheses, is to dream up, uh, you know, uh, concepts and notions and ideas and, and then work them over the best, you know, do the best sort of conceptual analysis you can on them. And then if it's an appropriate area, do the empirical uh, and figure out how to test it, how to falsify it, et cetera, right? Absolutely. The, the theory of microaggressions 100% should have been dreamed up. And in fact, I say that as someone who has been subject his whole life to microaggressions. I'm missing my left arm from below the elbow. I was born that way. So I've always had a, you know, very noticeably different body, I'm missing a limb, you know, and so for, as, for my whole life, as long as I can remember, I was subject to both actual just outright attacks, like sometimes physical kids would try to would physically attack me because of my arm 
or they would verbally attack me, assault me, insult me, abuse me. But also through that whole time, I've you know experienced what I now know to call microaggressions, these unintended slights. And so this is for me has been a lifelong thing. And so when I first learned of the theory, I, it clicked. I was like, oh, that's what that is. That's this thing that happens to me once a week where someone does something uh, without intending to, to sort of diminish me a little bit or, or slight me or insult me just a little, you know? Um, yeah, so absolutely. These, uh, these are important things to, uh, things like microaggressions are important to investigate. Um, I will say that if I had been, I think, this is, you know, it's hard to argue a counterfactual, but I think if someone had told me when I was a young person, as the microaggression literature tells you that, that microaggressions are harmful, and not just that they're harmful. I mean, this is in the 2007 article by Daryl Wing Sue et al. Not only are microaggressions harmful, they're more harmful than overt acts of aggression, the hurling of epithets, you know, things like that. If I had been taught that when I was a child, I cannot imagine what the consequences for my psychological and emotional development would have been, you know, I think it would have been devastating to me. That's just, that's my thought. But uh, I was brought up in a dignity culture where sticks and stones break your bones, but words don't hurt you. And so uh, I took that to heart and I, be I grew resilient, you know, to these things. And we're doing the opposite now. But yes, researchers should research whatever the hell they want. Academic freedom. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, uh, we'll move on from microaggressions. Yeah, we, sure. we, we're just using that as one example. But it's a, it's a great example. Yeah, but but for our audience, just so they just so they understand what we're arguing here, <clears throat> and and correct me if I'm wrong. I'll, I'll yeah. just name two of them. But you can, if there are more, I think two of the 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 big claims that have not been really verified strongly are number one, the intent part of this, right? I mean, aggression requires intent by definition. Uh, and by definition, <laughs> and then also. Uh, this concept creep, which I got mm -hmm. from uh, from Jonathan Haidt, you know, concept creep of harm, right? I mean, we, we claim a lot of harm, but uh, oftentimes now we don't have to demonstrate that it actually occurs, right? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, we don't have to demonstrate it. That's an explicit part of this new ideology that we're talking about, right? Whether we want to call it wokeness or whether we want to use... Uh, Wesley Yang's term, uh, successor ideology, but there is this new ideology in uh, that went from the academy to like social media to, you know, the, the minds of teenagers <laughs> across the country. Yeah, the idea is that harm, yeah, you don't have to demonstrate it. All you have to do, in fact, it's, a, it's yet another aggression to ask someone to demonstrate uh, harm, right? And so, Harm is now, I just have to take your word for it. And uh, so by that standard, I mean, I could, I could be using this weapon against people, right? I could be telling my colleagues, my school, the administrators, how much they're harming me. And they would just have to take my word for it because I am, after all, a person with a disability. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of, uh, and again, I get this from Jonathan Haidt in his book, The Coddling of the American Mind, but uh, uh -huh. <clears throat> he talks about concept creep, these concepts mm -hmm. that used to mean one thing and just have been sort of expanded to include a lot more um, that may be connected, maybe not, are less mm -hmm. proven to be connected, but things like abuse and bullying and danger and trauma. Mm -hmm. Trauma is one I hear a lot, um, mm -hmm. Yep, you know, and harassment, those sorts of things. So, 
Yeah. Um, the original article for that, like I, where Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff got it is Nick Haslam, 2016 article of that same name, Concept Creep. I believe he coined that term. Yep, absolutely. And he discussed all these examples. And, and it's only become more, you know, it's only gotten more out of control <laughs> since 2016. Yep. So uh, one of the, so one of the problems I see on the left right now is um, you know claiming things that have not been empirically demonstrated as settled fact. Uh, so that that's one thing, and that's made its way into our journals. It's made its way into policies all across the country, not and not just in colleges and K through twelve and corporations, and they're using these paradigms to structure all sorts of programs. But also um, coupled with that is so sort of, you know, um, claiming something is settled fact when it's not. But then people that disagree with that assertion mm -hmm. uh, now become bigots and pariahs. Yeah. And yeah. the left is really blind to this. One of the common things that you get in response when you say this to people is, oh, no, no, you're just mad that you can't be a bigot anymore. Yeah. yeah. Well, again, that's, you know, so if somebody is arguing in bad faith, or if somebody is being an explicit bigot, then yes, go ahead and make them a pariah. I'm fine with that, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but but good faith disagreements, I mean, take the example and the really controversial example of gender identity, right? Now, look, there are plenty of people who make bad faith arguments about gender identity and who really want to hurt trans people. And I'm not talking about those people. Those people deserve the scorn they get, Okay. But there are good faith arguments to be had on both sides of that issue, right? There are good faith arguments to be had about those who support certain notions about gender identity. And there are good faith critiques of those notions of gender identity. And the good faith critiques should not just be shut down. You can't just say, well, you're denying my right to exist because... Um, you don't agree with my version of reality, right? Or, or you're doing violence to me because you brought a good faith critique of something that is unsettled, right? Now, again, bad actors, people that want to hurt trans people, they deserve the scorn they get. I'm not talking about those people, right? But this is an unsettled area of empirical inquiry, and you can't just shut people down and cancel them when they bring good faith critiques of things that need to be critiqued, the things that we haven't settled empirically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's claiming uh, that that claim, like you're sort, you're what is it? You're sort of denying my existence. This kind of thing. It's it's this claim to the ultimate harm, right? It's more than just a microaggression or something like that. It's a uh, you know, you're actually erasing me. <laughs> you're you're killing me. I mean, you know. And so, uh, and I think the, the power of this claim to harm, which has been so weaponized in that way, you know, it's that we are actually, and, and this is good. We, we, you know, we have become progressively more and more in the sort of Western world. Um, you know, there's a, per, there's a culture that pervades the Western world of respect for people who've been victimized of concern for people who've been victimized of a desire to right the injuries to 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 do restorative justice for people who've been victimized and so the more this good thing happens i mean there were times when if you and there are today cultures where if you have been victimized 
that is a loss of face for you. <laughs> that is a loss of status. There are cultures in which if you've been victimized, you can be killed for it. If a woman is raped in, you know, some countries, that's grounds to kill her, you know, for in, in some contexts. So, so we are uh, extremely sensitive to the, to, to people who, to people who've been victimized. And what that does is it creates uh logic whereby claim of victimization becomes a claim to power. It becomes incredibly empowering. And so if I can say that you've hurt me, then I can extract concessions from you. But if I can say that you're erasing my existence, I mean, that that even more, um, right, it, it activates our collective desire to protect this victim. And so, yeah, it's, it's a weaponization of uh, this uh, good development in the sort of morality of the West. Um, and it's a using of this new morality uh, in the West, which again, is good. It's a using of it to, to, for, for personal, for power, right. And to extract concessions and to bully people into submission um, and to end conversations, you know, like you're saying, I mean, gender, the gender, these gender questions are, these are the most, to me, these are the most complicated questions that there are right now. Um, this is one of the hardest ones. And the idea that we can't talk about it uh, because it's, you know, harmful to you uh, or to someone is just, uh, that's a non-starter for me. We have to talk about this. Yeah. Well, right. And I mean, again, if, if somebody, I, I do not deny that there are plenty of people in the world who want to hurt trans individuals. Oh, absolutely. And I am yeah. vehemently against that. And yeah. I, be I believe that that should be something that's out of bounds, right? Um, but if you claim any, any disagreement with your particular view of gender identity as being on the other side, right, then what you often get then is, is something I've seen you talk about uh, mm. publicly, which is the virtuous lie. Uh -huh. right? So, uh -huh. uh, if, if somebody makes a, an empirical claim mm -hmm. that makes that that furthers your side's argument, mm -hmm. right, and and that um, you know furthers your particular conception of gender identity, that doesn't get questioned. It gets furthered, and a weak, mm -hmm. even weak or non-existent empirical claims, right, get get furthered, and any questioning of those claims puts you on the other side. Yeah, and it's it's these are virtuous lies and sometimes they're not outright lies right like some sure, of these distortions some, yeah. yeah or just like highly questionable claims right so there's sure. so this idea of the virtuous lie is that there are some things that we actually now the preponderance of evidence is that a certain claim is actually false <laughs> and but it's morally good to pretend that the claim is true but then yeah some of the things you're talking about maybe these claims that are just highly speculative or badly evidenced or, you know, uh, <laughs> or seem highly unlikely. Yeah. It, it becomes virtuous. It becomes morally good to affirm them rather than to question them. Right. This is necessary for us to maintain our standing as good moral people. Um, it becomes necessary for us to affirm these claims and say, yes, that's correct. Right. And well, that, right, and, yeah. and, and that's and the, the problem is not making the claim, right? Not the problem is not is not suggesting concepts for further uh, research. The problem is when the ideology of wokeism or whatever you want to call it um, short circuits the disconfirming yeah. responsibility of the larger intellectual community, right? Absolutely, yeah. So what it is is it's like a it's an intervention of morality in what should be an epistemological process, right? 
So claims uh, are epistemological. It's, when you make a claim, you're asserting, you know, some fact about you're asserting that something about the world is true or false or whatever. And then it's an epistemological problem to figure out whether that's correct and whether we've got it right. And, but then what happens in this sort of in what we're calling woke discourse um, is that uh, a moral concern comes in on top and, and short circuits the epistemological concern and just says to ask about the truth or falsity of this claim is a form of violence, right? Is evil. And so you are, you can't do the epistemological work because there's a moral reason not to, right? Um, so yeah, that, that's a, yeah, it's this, um, it's this, uh, what we're doing is we're killing uh, epistemology and we're doing it in the name of morality. That's what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, you know, you, you can see, you consider yourself center left politically, right? I mean, uh, in some, in some ways I'm not even center. I'm like left, left, you know, like I, I uh, donated to and supported Bernie Sanders, you know, like I like, Oh, you're one of those guys. You're a dude, bro. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I liked and still like uh, a lot of his sort of social, uh, sort of social programs. Sorry. I'm in favor of socialized medicine. You know, I think our poor for-profit medicine is a disaster. I think there's good parts about to it, but I think overall it, it's not serving us well. So yeah, I'm a, I'm basically on the left. Yeah, that's basically my orientation. Yeah, well, I just thought that'd be interesting to to tell our listeners because you're not some you know far right wing person hiding in the academy. You know, just not just angry at being snubbed or anything like that. I mean, uh, <laughs> nah. you're seeing, nah. uh, you know, and and one of the things that uh, you know I'm, I consider myself a centrist, and mm-hmm. um, there are a variety of reasons why. I care about these things. Number one is because that is the business we are in is verifying claims. Right? And, yeah. and I, we should be doing that regardless of how painful the claims are. Yeah. Uh, that this is the work that we are doing. Right. So, so fundamentally uh, that is the number one priority for me. But in addition to that, one of the things that I'm concerned about is the pedagogical aspect of this, which is mm. we have to be concerned with how people are going to hear our message if we want our message to win the day and mm. to make social change. And one way to clearly not have people hear your message is for them to become aware of ways in which you have distorted it and mm-hmm. ways in which you mm-hmm. have falsified your own data or um, you know, had a biased research question, right? And so you mentioned the police killings research, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I want to get that research right, not because I want to prove that African Americans are not being mistreated. Mm-hmm. I believe they're being mistreated in all sorts of ways in our society. Mm-hmm. I want to get it right, number one, because that is the that is the fundamental responsibility of our profession, number one. But number two, if we care about a more equal society, we're going to have to get people on board who are resistant to these ideas. Mm-hmm. And bending the truth will not help. In fact, it will probably cause them to be more resistant, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a, a th- there is a decline in trust uh, in, I think, all institutions right now. But there's a decline in trust in academic institutions right now. And I think it's for this precisely the reason you put your finger on is that People are not stupid, <laughs> you know. Americans are not stupid, and they can see that the academy uh, is bending the truth to 
put it mildly, is often telling virtuous lies, you know, is uh, often affirming things because it's seen to be, you know, to use a word from the 80s and 90s, politically correct, rather than because uh, it's, you know, what the most rigorous sort of research shows, right? So people can tell and uh, they're losing respect uh, and trust in us, us as academics and our institutions. And you're, you're absolutely right, I think, to say that this is really bad, not just for us and our credibility, like per, like me personally or my institution, but if we do care about social problems, it's only the honesty and credibility of the institutions tasked with investigating those problems that's going to allow us to come together, you know, broadly as a, as a society, right, left, and everything in between, and figure out solutions, right? So, yeah. So if if everything that comes out of the academy is instantly you know discredited just because it came out of a tainted institution um, in people's minds, um, then we have actually lost our grip on you know uh, creating change in the world that we might want to see. Right. So yeah, this is extremely dangerous. I think you know um, the the position we've put ourselves in through this sort of. Uh, heavily politicized and often uh, poorly evidenced uh, research that we're producing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and one of the um, ways that this debate I find grinds itself to a halt when I, when I bring this up to colleagues or, you know, write papers about this or anything like that. One of the ways in which this just, you know, uh, grinds into the mud and we become just sort of stuck is when, um, people argue, well, look what the other side is doing. It isn't that worse. Right. So if I say something mm. like, you know, MSNBC, you know, um, will claim many virtuous lies on the air, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, in a similar way to Fox news, I'm not saying they're equal. I think Fox news is one of the worst purveyors of this stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. But, but they're both contributing to the problem. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, uh, and again, I think this it's a sort of mutual dis- assured destruction where it's like, you know, if you are also contributing to it, even if the other side is bad, right, mm-hmm. you're, you're pushing them away from ever considering you the, the reasonable, logical alternative. And they're both contributing. I mean, the left, I don't think the left realizes just how much they are also in ideological echo chambers with, you know, MSNBC, CNN to some degree, uh, oh, you know, yeah. v- the Vox, Slate. I mean, there's yeah, a whole yeah. host of them, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, that they're co-creating the problem and they're, they're dancing a tango, right? Um, and they're, so they're responding to each other. Just as when you dance a tango, you respond to your partner's moves. That's what they're doing. And, uh, you know, both sides, each side thinks the other side is the sole transgressor, you know? Well, I have, I have no way, and maybe there is a way, but I don't personally know of a way to quantify whether the two sides are equivalent. So I'm not going to try to do that. No, yeah, yeah. But let me, I should just say, you know, election denying, you know, for the longest time denying that climate change existed, all that kind of stuff. Like those things were legitimately crazy claims, right? Yep. And so I'm not, I'm not absolving the right of that. I'm very, very concerned about that. I'm very concerned about the hyper-partisan, just straight propaganda of a places like Fox, Fox News and other oh, places. Yeah, yeah. What I'm what I'm concerned about is, and this is an interesting point. And again, I don't want to give both sides are contributing to the problem, and I'm mad at both sides for it. But 
one of the one of the interesting things is though is I've only actually seen the right admit to it. So for it's instance, interesting. Huh. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll mm. give you an example. Yeah. Maybe I'm maybe I'm overstating this, but Rush Limbaugh used to say, "Look, the left controls all these institutions, right? And so let's make our own." Right. Uh-huh. He would openly uh-huh. he would openly sort of admit what he was doing. Yes. Like you say, though, the left sort of sees himself. I'm over here just investigating truth, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I don't think they're necessarily aware. Like the right seems more self-aware as to what exactly they're doing, right? Well, you have your facts. We'll we'll create ours. Yeah, that's right. I don't I don't think the left is quite as as self-aware in that regard. That's right. I mean, the left has uh, this is yeah. This is a really good point. The uh, the left, in a sense, always did have the sort of legacy institutions, right? Um, it's its grip on them has become firmer and stronger and more distortionary, uh, I think, in recent years. But uh, that's right. The, the right very consciously said, I mean, when was it? Was it in the like 60s, 70s? I think it was a result of that sort of the turmoil of the late 60s. The right sort of said, well, damn it, you know, we need to just start our own institutions. And that's, I think, when think all these the right wing think tanks got going, right? And uh, big money on the right began to fund you know, yeah, began to fund essentially, uh, you don't want to call it propaganda, but you want to call it like an alternative stream of knowledge production to counter what they saw rightly even back then as the distorted knowledge production coming out of the legacy institutions, right? So that, yeah, the right said self-consciously, we've lost the legacy institutions. It's time to create our own ecosystem, our own institutions. And yeah, but by the time Rush Limbaugh comes along, like that's well underway and he, he knows exactly what he's doing. And yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. He made it very clear. I mean, he made it very yeah. explicit, right? Yeah. And so that's, that's right. Cause then if you're, if you're a professor at Harvard, you're just like, you, you're completely unself-reflexive, right? You're just like, well, no, I mean, I'm just like, it's just, I just take for granted that I'm part of like the community of the good like I'm, I'm living in the sort of blessed community that uh, has been tasked by society with, a, you know, sort of spell, uh, you know, pronouncing the truth to the masses. Like, duh, that's just who I am as a Harvard professor, right? So, whereas, yeah, the right is like not knowingly, they know that they're an, uh, an alternative. They know they're an insurgency, right? Whereas, yeah, the left is just sort of the status quo. Yeah. Well, and again, you know, another one of the responses that I can just sort of foresee coming from this episode is that, you know, in in critiquing our side, you know, our people, our colleagues and our institutions and uh, and journals and et cetera, that we're throwing our lot in with, you know, Ron DeSantis and Christopher Rufo. And let me be very clear. I am not. Right. So their responses to wokeism are equally crazy, if not worse. Right. So, uh, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what those responses have been, you know, Ron DeSantis down in Florida and Rufo now with a new college of Florida and, um, you know, so, so I I don't want to absolve (laughs) them, you know, to, to, to fix a problem with a problem is not the solution. Right. So could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. Gosh. Uh, it's a can of worms. I mean, on the one hand, you brought up the fact that so we are so tribalized now that people will say, you know, okay. I mean, let's even, let's just actually imagine one of our tribal colleagues. They will, they might say, you know what? You are right. You're right. There has been excesses on our side. We have been a little shrill on our side. 
we have overstated things on our side. You know, we have overdone it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. However, it's still our side. And you, to, to, you're going over to the enemy by, by raising these concerns and uh, you're aiding and abetting the enemy and you have to circle the wagons and defend our side. To me, that's, that's just like, it's actually a form of self-destruction, you know? What, what I do when I criticize my side, when I, well, my side, when I criticize the left, I'm Your trying, field, to, I try to be non, yeah. non-tribal. Yeah. When I criticize the left, when I criticize my field, when I criticize academia, I'm actually trying to save the damn thing, you know, <laughs> uh, because if, if all I did is circle the wagons and defend my team, you know, I'm only going to, to do, make the next move in that tango dance, right, that I talked about. I'm only going to co-create the problem with the Rufos and the DeSantis's. I'm only going to make DeSantis double down in his determination to radically upend academia, right? So, no, we need people on our side on, you know, from the left, uh, from academia who say, this has got to stop guys, or we have to rethink this. And just for any critics of, of this episode, uh, I do think, I do think that right there, what you have just put your thumb on is actually one of the crucial distinctions between what I see happening in the knowledge production left and happening in the response. So, you know, uh, being in the academy myself, I think I can I can shed a lot of light on this because I've seen it. The people that I deal with who who make really empirically weak claims, I don't know that they're aware they're doing it. Uh huh. Yeah. I think they're. No. Be, I think they honest. It's a good faith. They honestly believe they're structuring their research questions correctly. They're they're structuring their variables correctly. They're interpreting the data correctly. I think they truly believe it. And I can I can back that up with with oh, sure. know, plenty of receipts. <laughs> People like Rufo and DeSantis, they are not giving you a good faith. This is all, this is political. This is about power. This is about partisanship, right? I mean, Rufo said publicly on Twitter that he basically wanted to uh, cast anything as critical of America or critical of American race relations as wokeism, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's, he he wanted to make it a brand, right? Yeah, he wanted to um, like sort of, Create a situation in which the average American, the second they hear anything of a certain sort, right, like that you're talking about, like critical of sort of the way, you know, racism in this country. or He wanted to create a situation where the second they heard that, they would wrap it up in a ball with, you know, CRT and DEI and whatever, this, this, you know, ball of concepts that he has helped uh, make toxic. Right. He wanted to make certain things just toxic. And uh, yeah, so that's right. That's a that's a way of saying, you know, that's a very it's very a naked will to power. Right. It's just I am attempting to seize power. Here's how I'm doing it. And I don't care who knows. And I think you're absolutely right. Our colleagues, what I come away from interactions with colleagues with more than anything is a sense of I cannot believe you don't know this, that, <laughs> that your a priori, your assumptions, your starting premises are, uh, well, in half the time, I think they're just demonstrably known to be false. But at best, at best, they're often just incredibly tendentious and in, in you know, contested. And uh, my colleagues just complacently accept them as settled fact, right? And it's because they're in a 
environment. They're in a social context in which they never have to question them. And all the rewards are in the direction of just accepting them, right? So yeah, but anyways, I rambled on that one a bit, but yes. Well, Jacob Mackey, we have run out of time, but I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. I've got pages and pages of questions that I wanted to get to. I could talk to you for hours, but uh, we'll put a pin in this conversation now. Jacob Mackey, thank you so much for joining the Utterly Moderate podcast today. Uh, Thank you so much for having me, Lawrence, and I look forward to talking again sometime soon. Mr. President, today was heartbreaking. And, uh, and I was shaken to the core as I thought about the people I met in China and Russia and Afghanistan and Iraq and other places who yearn for freedom and who look to this building and these shores as a place of hope. And I saw the images being broadcast around the world and it breaks my heart. I have 25 grandchildren. Many of them were watching TV, thinking about this building, whether their grandpa was okay. I knew I was okay. I must tell you as well, I was proud to serve with these men and women. This is an extraordinary group of people. I'm proud to be a member of the United States Senate and meet with people of integrity as we do here today. Now we gather due to a selfish man's injured pride and the outrage of supporters who he has deliberately misinformed for the past two months and stirred to action this very morning. What happened here today was an insurrection incited by the President of the United States. Those who choose to continue to support his dangerous gambit by objecting to the results of a legitimate democratic election will forever be seen as being complicit in an unprecedented attack against our democracy. Fairly or not, they'll be remembered for their role in this shameful episode in American history. That will be their legacy. I salute Senator Langford and Leffler and Braun and Danes, and I'm sure others, who in the light of today's outrage have withdrawn their objection. For any who remain insistent on an audit in order to satisfy the many people who believe that the election was stolen, I'd offer this perspective. No congressional audit is ever going to convince these voters, particularly when the president will continue to say that the election was stolen. The best way we can show respect for the voters who were upset is by telling them the truth. That's the burden. That's the duty of leadership. The truth is that President-elect Biden won the election. President Trump lost. I've had that experience myself. It's no fun. Scores of courts, the president's own attorney general, state election officials, both Republican and Democrat have reached that unequivocal decision. And in light of today's sad circumstances, I asked my colleague, do we weigh our own political fortunes more heavily than we weigh the strength of our republic, the strength of our democracy, and the cause of freedom? What's the weight of personal acclaim compared to the weight of conscience? 
Leader McConnell said that the vote today is the most important in his 36 years of public service. Think of that. Authorizing two wars, voting on two impeachments. He said that not because the vote reveals something about the election, it's because this vote reveals something about us. I urge my colleagues to move forward with completing the electoral count, to refrain from further objections, and to unanimously affirm the legitimacy of the presidential election. Thank you, Mr. President. There's a chapel in Kansas, standing on the exact center of the lower 48. It never closes. All are more than welcome to come meet here in the middle. It's no secret, the middle has been a hard place to get to lately, between red and blue, between servant and citizen, between our freedom and our fear. Now fear has never been the best of who we are. And as for freedom, it's not the property of just the fortunate few. It belongs to us all. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, it's what connects us. And we need that connection. We need the middle. We just have to remember the very soil we stand on is common ground. So we can get there. We can make it to the mountaintop, through the desert, and we will cross this divide. Our light has always found its way through the darkness. And there's hope on the road up ahead.